hope you've had a wonderful day of practice and that it wasn't too hard to settle down and get used to being in this mode of silence and stillness and to begin to settle into the schedule and being with your fellow yogis or as better. So as I was saying, I hope you've had a a good day of settling in and uh, settling into the schedule and uh, being with your fellow yogis and being in a new environment. It sometimes takes a day or two to settle in, to to retreat. So I hope that it was uh, somewhat fruitful and that uh, Um, You're looking forward to being here for the rest of the time. I'd like to talk tonight about the sacred journey. There's a deep level of work that we've come together to do, to search our hearts and to see what understanding and truth and strength we can uncover to bring to this journey of being an embodied being. It's not easy, you know, on this planet and in this time. We are in a great time of difficulty in the, um, in human history. When we look at the state of the world sometimes can feel not so hopeful, especially if we look at the, uh, the history of, of humanity. It sometimes doesn't inspire us to think that we can do better. We're in a time of tribal wars, useless wars, revolutions that come to just replace previous revolutions In our culture, we see environmental degradation, two million people in prison, and we're building more prisons to house more prisoners. We are still under the grip of uh, racial, gender, sexual orientation, bigotry. And so it sometimes feels as if we need to just do what we can and leave it at that. But in every great age and culture, there is 
humankind has had preoccupation with that which transforms, that which heals us and opens us, that which takes us beyond the limited sense of ourselves to that which is greater, to the sacred and to the transcendental. And it's a, it's a universal journey that Joseph Campbell calls the journey of the hero. And it's the journey of the healer, of the yogi, such as we are here, the sage, the wise person, the wise woman, or wise man. And although this journey may be separated from you know, one culture to another, from one uh, continent to another, or from one age to another, whether it's the Buddha uh, 2,560 years ago, or us here, it's always the same journey. And it's the journey where we leave the busyness of our lives, the mundane nature of our lives, and we enter a deeper realm. And in that deeper realm, we deeply desire to touch that which is holy, and then to find a way to bring that back, to integrate that into our hearts and our lives. And as you probably know, holy has the same root as whole, wholeness, to become whole, to be not separate in any realm of experience, to be connected. And it takes a great deal of courage and constancy and patience. And there are many stages to this journey of opening and awakening, awakening and uh, healing. And uh, I think the, uh, the foremost feature of this journey is that it never ends. <laughs> as long as we're alive, we're on it. And in the beginning, the first stage of uh, this journey is one of relinquishment or renunciation. There comes the time when we look at our lives and at the engine that fuels our intentions and our thoughts and our actions. And perhaps we don't frame it in the way that the Buddha did when he said that our unhappiness or the unsatisfactoriness that we feel comes from our cravings from our anger and fear, and from our ignorance or our delusion. But we may just see a kind of inner frustration, or a lack of depth, or something that just doesn't quite fit together. You know, the word dukkha, which uh, is the Pali word for this feeling of unsatisfactoriness, or not quite there, or not quite right. Um, it literally means uh, the, a, a, a wheel that's come off of its hub, so it doesn't quite fit. And you know how it is when a wheel comes off of its hub, it kind of 
gets, you know, it, it feels all of the bumps and the ruts in the road, and it's, it's kind of rickety. So even if we're doing uh, good work, and we're serving, and we're helping, there may come a call to something deeper, a call to awakening, a call to look at what drives us, and to see what can be changed. So instead of just living out this kind of um, cultural norm of consuming and uh, valuing only that which can be consumed, there comes a sense, perhaps, that there is another way. And so we, we look deeper into our lives and we um, turn from the outer things. We turn inward. We're oriented not towards the society and its conventional values and the endless wheel of desire and consumption, but to the heart and its place in the cosmos. And it's not necessarily going to the mountains or the forests, although they're wonderful places to learn. And they are wonderful environments, as you've probably experienced already today, in which to establish the silence and the patience that we create in our practice of presence and of pure experience. This is from Wendell Berry, who's a wonderful naturalist. He said, as soon as I felt a necessity to learn about the non-human world, I wished to learn about it in a hurry. And then I began to learn perhaps the most important lesson that nature had to teach me, that I could not learn about her in a hurry. The most important learning, that of experience, can be neither summoned nor sought out. The most worthy knowledge cannot be acquired by what is known as study, though that is necessary and has its use. It comes in its own good time and in its own way to the person who will go where it lives and wait and be ready and watch. Hurry is beside the point, useless, an obstruction. The thing is to be attentively present, to sit and wait is as important as to move. Patience is as valuable as industry. What is to be known is always there. When it reveals itself to you, or when you come upon it, it is by chance. The only condition is your being there and being watchful. So the call comes, and we recognize that it's not a call that we can answer by hurrying. It's not a call that we can answer with impatience. It's a call that we answer by simply being there 
and watching and waiting. And then there comes a sacred question. It can be, who am I? Or what is this life about? What is it for? Or what would it mean to love deeply and fully? But it's a question that comes from inside us. So what is your question? What is your sacred question? What brings you, what question brings you to this practice? Is it some deep desire to know or to be free or to love or simply to understand the nature of sacred longing, of sacredness. This is Hafiz. Now is the time to know that all that you do is sacred. Now, why not consider a lasting truce with yourself and God? Now is the time to understand that all your ideas of right and wrong were just a child's training wheels to be laid aside when you can finally live with veracity and love. Now is the time for the world to know that every thought and action is sacred, that this is the time for you to compute the impossibility that there is anything but grace. Now is the season to know that everything you do is sacred. So there is a question, what is the purpose of this or how can I love and how can I truly understand beyond convention, beyond desire, what is sacred? And the next piece that comes in the journey is some kind of, some form of practice, some kind of discipline that has the potential to break the shell of our conditioning, of our habit. Not so much to gain something or to satisfy a desire, but actually so that we can stop running away from our lives and come back to what is here now. And we use a discipline or a practice, some way to do it that's not imposed from the outside. We must do deep practice for ourselves that's generated from within the heart. And this discipline, this way to transform what we see is a building of personal power. And here, that's what we're building. This morning, Chaz gave beautifully clear instructions on working with the body and with the breath. And it's a powerful way to train the mind away from its habitual distractions. We are a culture of distraction. We elevate the distraction. We take our distractions very, very seriously. Our culture values them highly and conditions them very, very well. So here, 
we let go of that. And we sit and we walk. And it's incredibly simple, isn't it? Well, it's incredibly simple to describe, isn't it? Maybe not so easy to do. And you sit down and you say, okay, your mi- okay mind, here we go, right? We're going to get anchored now. We're going to stay right here, right on this breath, or right on this sound, or right on this contact of the buttocks with the seat. And where does the mind go? It goes to Jamaica, you know, 1973, right? Very good year. Goes to Hawaii. Goes to England. Goes to 2012. 1999. So the first thing that's necessary in this kind of discipline, whether we're using the breath or the body or sound or whatever object we use as our anchor, it's, it, it's designed, practice is designed to bring the energies together, to bring the mind, to gather the mind and bring its energies together. Because here in this moment, is where the learning will take place. Here in this moment is where this transformation takes place. So that what we're after is not so much an out-of-body experience as in-the-body experience. And the first thing we do is we just connect. The mind, the heart, the body, our whole being to be here. And we do it over and over and over and over again. Uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan um, lama from the mid, latish 20th century, called meditation manual labor. Because we do it in a way over and over again, whether, as the Buddha said, sitting, walking, standing, lying down, or even eating, doing our yogi jobs, we're training the mind to be here so that eventually we begin to see for ourselves the true nature of reality. We see truly the cause of unhappiness and the remedy. So what's important is feeling the touch of the breath in the body. Not so much the idea of the breath or the concept of the breath, but actually pre-verbally experiencing the life breath, the movement of it, this mystery that keeps us alive and connected with one another. We're all breathing the same breath, the same air. We're breathing what you breathed a little while ago. We share it with each other and with all the other beings, past, present, and future. The breath you just took, may have been breathed out by Gandhi or Napoleon. And it's to feel it, to bring yourself back over and over and over again until after some time with the gathering of the energy of the body and mind, there comes a sense of wholeness, a connectedness. And it's this process, this fire of discipline that starts to transform us. And what we begin to see is that it's not so much uh, the desire for the attainment of a particular state of mind or some otherworldly state, but our ability to be here for what Zorber, the Greek, called the full catastrophe. 
the totality of the truth of our lives if we keep doing it and coming back gradually over and over again we'll begin to see so I like this um, the statistic from the Guinness Book of World Records it's the category for most failures on a learner's test it's a record for persistence in taking and failing tests for a driver's license, which is held by Miriam Hargrave, who failed her 39th driving test in eight years on April 29th when she crashed through a set of red lights accidentally. She finally passed her 40th test in August the following year, but unfortunately she spent so much on lessons that she could no longer afford to buy a car. That was 1970. In 1978, she was still reported to have great difficulty with left-hand turns. And then there's Mrs. Fanny Turner of Little Rock, Arkansas, who passed her written test on her 104th attempt in October of 1978. And there's also a record for the longest kiss, 17 hours and 10 days. So when you're feeling impatient or bored, you can in your next sit, you can think about that. <laughs> right before you come back to the breath. <coughs> so this discipline, this persistence, <coughs> happens with your being present. Someone has to be here to awaken. We need to be present to be here. And so the process is over and over again coming back with the next step, with a cup of tea. Would you like some water? with the next step, with, the, with a cup of tea, with going to the bathroom, with opening the door, feeling the breath, or whatever experiences are arising as they arise, and really a willingness to do that. We get afraid, or we tend to adjust. You find your rhythm in here, and you find your way to do it. And it's not, as Chaz was saying um, this morning to, um, to someone who was talking about pain and how to work with pain, that it's not so much, um, you know, bearing down and gritting your teeth and, uh, um, you know, really making such great effort that it hurts. Because the real effort is the effort of the heart. It's our willingness to practice, to sit and walk and be in some deep way, truly with ourselves and with what's here and do it over and over again, but in kindness and in gentleness. To be willing to stay with our life as it is from one moment to another. And in doing it, there comes a sense 
that through repeating the practice of sitting and walking, that we have some power of our spirit, that we have power of our being and of our heart. And much of the time in this practice, we become surprised at how much power, we re- how much inner power there really is contained in this body and mind. It's much more than we generally know. This from Martin Luther King is Junior is a is a an example of that power of the heart. He says, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down with our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process. It's that soul force that we discover as we sit and walk and sit and walk again and again and again. So we have, on the journey so far, a turning away from worldly values, a sacred question, and then a discipline with which we're willing to stop our busyness and just be with what is in a true way. So what happens when we do it? Trouble comes. Sometimes, In the journey of the hero, it's called hardship or difficulty. And in the Buddhist texts, it's called Mara. Mara is the name for a god or an archetype of all our troubles rolled into one. And as we finally stop from all the running around and the distraction and the busyness that we engage in, so we don't have to feel and we don't have to face what's here, and we don't have to be here. We engage in distraction. When we really start to undertake in some deep way this surrender into the present, then inevitably what will come is hardship. And I imagine that one or two of you have discovered that today. And these hardships, in a sense, are all the things we've run away from our whole life. So Mara comes in many forms. He comes as temptation and all the kinds of desires and temptations. As Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything but temptation. (laughs) So I imagine we're the same. And Mara comes in the form of recreation. You know, let's just watch a little TV or as fantasy, as lust, as desire. It's all kinds of temptations, and he's been around for millennia, not only in India in the Buddha's time, but in Greece and in Rome and in China and in Egypt. And certainly he's 
He comes to us here. And then when you've learned to work with all of that, he comes in a more difficult form. He comes not as a, not as a, te- as a tempter, but as an attacker. And there's anger and doubt, and I can't do it, and it's the wrong way, and what's wrong with the teachers, and they don't know much anyway. And it's maybe the wrong time, and maybe I shouldn't have come on this retreat because I have so much else to do at home. And as we were discussing in the Q&A this morning, my body hurts, or I'm falling asleep, or the opposite of falling asleep, I can't stop my mind. And my body just wants to jump up off of my cushion and run out of this hole screaming. I guess nobody's experienced that. And then you work with that. And you try to see it clearly. And it's difficult when you're physically still, but there is energy and there are vibrations and all the thoughts and speed and restlessness going on inside of you. But then if we, if we, if we prevail and, and we persist and we keep coming back to what's here now, then there's an opening of the body and a settling down and an unnati. And don't be fooled. It's not permanent, right? It may come... It may come in waves and in cycles. But the pains and difficulties have to be felt to be released and allowed over and over and over again. So the attack comes in that way. And it means when the difficulties come, the the physical difficulties, to soften around them. The knees hurt, the back, the shoulders, all these things are part of what we have carried for so long. And they've been buried by our running away and not being here. So when we finally get quiet and we sit, they show themselves. All the knots that we've carried as they release, and and as they release and open, they hurt more sometimes, not less or the feelings that come with them, our sorrow and our grief and our rage and our unfinished business. All of these are things we face as our practice gets deeper and deeper and as we settle down. But the good news is that they're workable. And not only are they workable, but they're part of what makes the practice bring a strength to you. It's not that the difficulties are problems, but that they are part of the process of opening and unfolding and shifting. So restlessness comes, and what do you do? So you sit, and you be restless. And as um, Jack Kornfield, our teacher of several of us, says, Say you stay here, and you say, then I'll be the first yogi to die of restlessness on the cushion. And see what happens. 
You say to Mara, take me, go ahead. So he comes in all these forms. Desire, come on, let's just feel, fulfill one more desire, right? Temptations and imaginations and sleepiness and anger and difficulties and body pain and doubt, I can't do this, and fears. All sorts of things attack us. And what our task is to find what Joseph Campbell calls, describes in the journey as the unmovable seat in the center of the world. That you just sit as the Buddha did on the night of his enlightenment. He sat down under the Bodhi tree and he said, I'm not going to move for anything. And there are subtle temptations that come as these difficulties disappear. So the, the more obvious ones disappear and the subtler ones appear and you get clarity and light. You may have a sitting where you really feel, ah, oh, there wasn't any pain or there wasn't any discomfort and the mind was relatively settled, it's relatively clear. And what happens right after that? A little pride comes. Hmm, well, I think I'm doing fine. I think I'm really doing this well. Well, you know, look how good I am. Or I want to hold on to this calm or this light. Let's see. So the next sitting you come in and you sit down on your cushion. You say, well, let's see. I had my left leg over my right leg. And, you know, I was slightly turned this way. And my eyes were just a little bit open. So maybe if I do exactly the same thing, it will happen again. And guess what? It doesn't. And that is Mara in more subtle guise. Because the true practice is to discover that nothing whatsoever can be held on to. Even when light and rapture and clarity arise for you. Our task is just as Chaz said this morning again, to receive the awareness of what is here. So we see light, light, rapture, rapture, clarity, clarity. It comes and it goes. And it's all part of the passing show. And it's to find that unshakable place that is not attracted by or lost in anything. Nothing, because everything arises and passes, whether it's pleasant or it's unpleasant. And I know we think it's good news if it's unpleasant that things arise and pass. We think it's not so good news if it's pleasant. But if we look deeply into even that desire to hold things that are pleasant and to push away that which is unpleasant, we begin to see how fruitless an endeavor that is. Because as we look more and more deeply, we begin to realize and to understand that the nature of life is there is dark and there is light. There is um, up and there's down, there's pleasure and pain, 
there's gain and loss, there's praise and blame, there's always in life these two sides that are um, irrevocable and inexorable. So you find that seat, you find that unshakable place, not lost in and not attracted by anything that arises and passes. So to journey by sitting on that unmovable spot, to find that the mind and body will present to us every realm imaginable, and to find in that the power of the heart to be unmoved. So what allows us to sit unmoved in the center of the world? It's that place of our being and our hearts and that's our wisdom and our love that sits in the midst of everything. It's not our will. It's not our desire to find a place that will you know, solve the problem of difficulty. And of course it's difficult. But the Buddha said that there's one thing, which is the not seeing, that has kept us bound to the wheel of samsara, which means this wheel or this cycle of endless busyness of becoming and doing and getting and having over and over and over again. And he said that It's the unwillingness to stop and face the pain and the suffering of our life. That if we sit and face everything we have run from, it's right there in the center of that hardship and that difficulty that we learn how to transform Mara. It's as Trudy said last night, alchemical. Like turning lead, everything that we we carry that's heavy and burdensome into gold, to a luminosity, lumined brightness. And what you learn when you sit and face this is that finally you have to cooperate with Mara. You learn to see and accept and be not so traumatized by it. And it's not that you have to get rid of it, but you learn instead the power of the heart to sit unmoved in the center of the world. This is the last lesson it said the lesson of the transforming power of love and of openness and of awareness 
It's always left for the very last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude, which is when a person faces their death and aloneness. Only then does it make sense. This is written in a letter by a friend of mine who died um, of ovarian cancer a couple of years ago after a long illness with it. She said, in my years of practice, I have spent many hours sitting with aversion to unpleasant body sensations. As I sat with my distended belly, what I saw was that every itch I didn't scratch, every tickle in my throat I didn't cough, and every throb on my forehead from a migraine that I didn't rub had served me well. I had developed, cultivated, a muscle for bearing witness, being a mirror unpleasant body sensations. The more I continued in this way, the more peaceful I have become. There is no separation. The unpleasant body sensations and peacefulness are now seamless. Spontaneously, I find myself chanting the refuges. So the power that we learn to sit and face what is here and let it touch our hearts and to receive it with the power of our kindness and our understanding. So we go through the hardships, not around them or not suppressing them or pushing them away. And then after a period of practice, what comes is a kind of transcendence, a going beyond what we thought was limited, what we thought was a small self, the small self of body and mind. It's a kind of dying over and over again, maybe deeper each time, seeing that we possess nothing, not our breath, not our bodies. We see it's just breath and the play of elements and moving in the space we call body, which we're just renting anyway. We have to take care of it, but that's, that's about it. And we see that even our thoughts are not our own. We try to get them to do what we want, right? We try to get the mind to stop thinking or to be here, to be here. Tell them, tell it to do it and see if it listens. And I think you can tell from your experience today it's not much use. So we see in a very deep sense that we possess none of it. And the whole sense of ourself may dissolve. And there's an opening and a fearlessness and an understanding that who we are is much greater than we had presumed. You come to what the Buddha called the place of unshakability unshaken by the wind, because you face your fears and your lonely loneliness and your inevitable death, all your desires, the past and the future.
This is from the Diamond Sutra, Mahayana Sutra. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And that place that we can touch and know that that is true is a place that is still and whole and timeless. The mind, Krishnamurti said that when the mind is still and tranquil and not seeking any answer or any solution, neither resisting nor avoiding, it is only then that there can be regeneration. Something new can be born because then the mind is capable of perceiving that which is true. And he said, it is the truth that liberates, not our efforts to be free. And out of that and out of this practice comes an ability to act and play with our heart open in every realm and without getting caught in the dualities of suffering and perfection and the real and the unreal. Those are just words that we use to try to describe the mystery. And that brings us to the final stage of the hero's journey, which is the integration of our work. As we sit or walk or whatever practice of the heart we do and we let ourselves really go into it deeply and surrender and open, eventually we have to return. Maybe some of you know the ox herding pictures in the Zen tradition where it shows the sage going through his, going into um, the journey and coming back into the marketplace as the 10th, the last picture in, the, in, in those pictures in that process. And so we come in to integrate our work. We become uh, truly a part of the world, not separate from it. We become a, a bodhisattva, one who is here to help, to help the freedom of all beings, or a healer. And that happens not because you've been to some transcendent place so much, but because you've actually gone through your own suffering. You've seen your own suffering, and you've also seen freedom. And you've seen it not some, in some other place, in some otherworldly place, but in this very body and mind, in this very life. And that's where it's to be found. And because you've touched your fears and your sorrows and your aloneness and even your death, you can manifest compassion. Having traveled the journey in every circumstance, you can help whatever situation you're in because you're not so afraid. And there's a tremendous sense of freedom and joy in entering the world with that kind of heart. And it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing that you do here. Your practice is a very big deal. 
because the world needs a few good yogis right now. Because the real changes in the world don't come from mass movements so much as but they start as seeds in each person's heart. There is a deep power of each person to bring light into this world. And the power, it's the power of one person who is deeply committed to the truth and living uh, from that place. And that's enormous, whether it's Buddha or Jesus or Gandhi or Mother Teresa, who affects millions and millions and millions of people just by the power of their spirit and their light. So never doubt that your ability to find your own light is not the most important thing, the most important work that we can do. Or it may be a Newton or a Shakespeare or an Einstein who listens so deeply that they can affect the whole dimension of our lives. We sometimes in our culture think that love is not important or that it's weak. Because if we're too nice and too loving, there's a fear that we'll be weak. And we forget that it's not a weakness, that it's a great power that can move the world. And incredible things are done from that spirit. If you've ever been in the presence of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, you know what I mean. Just his entry into a room, even if you're with a thousand people, can move, has certainly moved me several times to tears, just his, just his entering the room. And it's the love that he carries in his heart. So the power of any one person who has actually had the courage and the patience and the constancy of heart to face themselves is incredible. So we're not here really, perhaps we'll get some uh, psychological work happening in our practice, but that's not really the main purpose for us to be here. We're here for something deeper, to take this time and create our own sacred journey, sacred journey for ourselves. And in this very simple activity of following the breath or the footstep of being present with a bird song or with the difficulties or our pains, we're here to touch deeply that which is sacred, that which is transcendent and free, that which has been touched by many beings before us, by humans in every great time and culture. And it's here to be touched by us in humility, because the route, the route to freedom is not around our difficulties or our imperfections or by denying them or suppressing them, 
but directly through them. The Buddha was asked, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. He said, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. But how, dear sir, did you cross over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place? He said, when I, was, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed place, in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So if we linger, we're overcome. If we hurry and we resent the waves occurring naturally, we'll be exhausted. And it's the same with our meditative experience. We take it one step at a time with a sense of delicacy and a sense of surrender. We can afford to relax, to be gentle, and to be accepting. And it's the most wonderful thing that we can do with our time. And whenever it's taken, wherever this journey is undertaken, it becomes a great temple. And so we create a great temple together as each of us undertakes this journey. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.